Hi, my name is Jacob Collins Brown, and this is UKBF Stories, where we are telling the story of small businesses across the UK and shining a spotlight on their journey. Hi again, I'm Richard Osborne from UK Business Forums, and today I'm talking to Matt Fountain, the founder and managing director of Bewitched Coffee. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, very well, and thank you for joining us here. Uh, the I'm a fan of Bewitched. The I think the business is fantastic, and those who follow UK Business Forums already and have seen some of our social posts uh, would have picked up uh, where uh, one a few weeks ago, or probably a month ago, I was driving past your Moulton Park uh, location and had a conversation about Dragon's Den and moving into a challenging field. The, we'll cover some of that as we sort of talk a little bit later, but just to kick us off, um, tell, us, uh, tell us what Bewitched Coffee is. Bewitched Coffee, effectively, so we started 11, year ago, 11 years ago as a, a singular site, uh, and we were, we've evolved now into a business where we're looking to disrupt uh, the market to a certain extent, certainly locally and regionally. Yeah. And the with Bewitch, um, when you say disrupt a market, this is a there's some big players. This is coffee shops effectively. It's a and there's some big players in that market. So quite um, no small feat, I'd imagine. It's it's not a small feat, but equally, it's not like we're setting up a seven and a half thousand square foot convenience store. That you know you're talking about fifteen hundred square foot uh, spaces. Um, and effectively, we're looking to differentiate ourselves more, more so on service as, as much as anything, and then obviously closely followed by product and cleanliness. Okay, that's great. Um, now, if we look at how how you started and sort of look, sort of take the journey back, so you um, and your partner, I believe, went to Moulton College. So you're, you're you're local to this area, is that right? Yeah, so it's actually one of my best friends, uh, Richard, who came into the business at the, at the start with me. Uh, we we went, both went to Moulton School, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I came out of Moulton School when I was probably 15. I went to a school in Wellingborough, but I was, I was there for the majority of my my education. Um, which makes sense, sort of being in this area. And so where did you go from Moulton when you, when you left that school there? So where did your career start? So it was after I left university, I'd, I'd qualified in a degree that kind of qualified me for nothing to keep my options open, uh, but I didn't have any particular relevant work experience. So attended loads of interviews, sent off hundreds of CVs, got very little back and, and effectively fell into hospitality in, in pizza. A friend got me a, a job working as a waiter in, in Milton Keynes uh, and that journey kind of cracked on from there, really. Yes, how'd that... Uh... So starting in Pizza Hut, how did that, so how long was you then? How did that progress then? What roles do you have within Pizza Hut? So yeah, started as a waiter, then pretty much got demoted to the kitchen um, and, and pot wash. And um, really from, from there, I, I think I had a couple of moments where I thought hospitality wasn't for me. Um, so I tried, uh, I remember working for David Lloyd and went to work for HSBC, but I, I ended up coming back to hospitality and pizza because I, I love the buzz of working in a hospitality business um, I think I probably went back into pizza when I was 27 
again as a waiter, but just knuckled down to effectively, right, I want to, I want to become a store manager. And then once I became a store manager, I want to become an area manager. Um, and, and that's probably where I started to hit a glass ceiling in the corporate world, to be honest. The, so what, um, I suppose, during that journey, especially when you was uh, sort of moving from store manager, area manager, that must have been educational as well, though. Yeah, very much so. Because I think obviously there's a load of steps between store manager and and area manager and and various hoops to go through within the corporate in, environment. Um, but equally, when you're working in one site and influencing people versus working in multiple sites and trying to remotely influence people, uh, that's really helped me uh, expand our business from from one site without a shadow of a doubt and without that experience. I think I'd really have struggled, to be honest. So there's a Pizza Hut themselves, they operate a franchise model, if I understand it correctly. And there's a reason I'm asking this, which we can cover later when we talk more about Bewitched itself and your journey there. But uh, well, whilst working in that environment and working through that model, did that sort of give you any insight or ideas behind franchising? It did. I mean, Pizza, they, they were very much focused in that period of time on franchising their delivery business, but their delivery arm was much more successful than their uh, full restaurant um, division. So, yeah, it certainly gave me an inkling that that was a, a good way to expand the business. Yeah, that's cool. And then you mentioned come 2009, uh, that's when you, your career at Pizza Hut ended. What happened there? Yeah, so it was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest with you. Um, I was performance managed for for 18 months. The, the, the whole market had changed. It had gone from a business that was double-digit growth every year to really struggling in, in a new, exploding, casual dining market. Um, I remember having a performance review and effectively saying, you know, they said to me, what, what, are your, what are your plans? What do you want to achieve this year? I said, you know, I want to start looking at opening my own business potentially. And I think really as soon as that was documented, I think my, my, my kind of my days were numbered, um, but I was I was very heavily performance managed for about eighteen months where I could not do right from you know well right you know I just couldn't do anything right effectively even if I got the results that they wanted me to get it was very much um, the conversation was around how how are you getting these results uh, we don't think that they're being produced in the right way um, I then got called down to a meeting with my boss at head office and uh, walked into an office with what was effectively uh, one of his bosses to be told that I was being made redundant. So it, it was a shock. But um, as I sat there in that meeting, to be honest, I was just trying to keep a smile off my face because I had my business plan done. Um, although in hindsight, there were loads of I's to dot and T's to cross. The, you know, the, 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 the foundation of the business was there um, and I knew I was going to get a payout of some description. And um, it was money that, you know, I was trying to save money at that point in time to start a business. So knowing that I was going to get some kind of injection uh, was, was, was quite exciting. So you'd already, at that point, you just mentioned you'd started writing a business plan for what was to become Bewitched. So the same model? It was exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I've been going to some night classes that weren't particularly useful, but they did um, give me some ideas and then obviously reading books but yeah the business plan was was broadly finished um, the at that point in time Costa were clearly a, a growth business uh, and actually I declined an area manager's job with Costa 
um, two years prior to being made redundant. Um, and actually that, that then just, just predated me then being performance managed heavily. So, um, well, I can see obviously costs are growing, but actually my, uh, my, my original business model was, was much more heavily focused around sandwiches. Um, hence why the name has no, no T in it. Okay. The, um, I did wonder that. <laughs> I weren't sure if that was like a, any sort of like copyright issues around the TV program or anything like that. No, but, no yeah. so it's purely a there's, a, there's a, there's a brand in the States called Witchcraft with, with no T in, which I'd experienced a couple of times, um, almost like a, a subway, but just way better. Um, there's a brand in the, in the UK called Phil Potts, who I admired. This is, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Um, again, made to order sandwiches and baps and things, bits and bobs, but, uh, really, really good quality, um, product. Um, so as, as the business plan started to come together, obviously I could see the coffee market was starting to explode. So obviously I'll, you know, the, 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 the final business plan was great made to, made to order sandwiches and great coffee under one roof. Um, and I think at the point, at that point in time, my business plan referenced, um, businesses like Oliver Adams, you know, that was a huge business in the, in Northamptonshire at that point in time, they were kind of doing, if not made to order sandwiches, I think they were doing to it to a certain extent, but certainly fresh sandwiches. Um, and then Costa were doing, you know, coffee, uh, great coffee at that point in time. Um, so if you're in Northampton town center, for instance, and you wanted a great coffee and a great sandwich, you'd have to go to Costa and go to Oliver Adams. And when folk looking about the production, you know, writing that business plan, you just mentioned you went to some evening classes and doing, um, yeah, studying, learning along that, uh, with that, the, did you write the business plan yourself? Did you, um, have. Uh, whether it be a consultant or somebody else helping you pull that together. How did the creation of that plan come about? Yeah, from memory, I think I got a template off offline um, and then I just kind of went about filling in um, the, the various elements. Um, my dad, I think, gave me some um, advice. He, he was a bank, a previous bank manager. So just in terms of the type of thing, the, the, the granular detail the banks would be looking for. Um, but yeah, it was pretty much put together by myself, to be honest, and um, quite um, in some some terms, quite a laborious um, thing thing to do. Obviously, extremely useful, um, and actually, I think the most useful part of it was analysing the local market. Yeah. Um, so I know because because the first site was originally going to be in Northampton, you know, there wasn't a coffee shop or a or a sandwich shop in Northampton that I hadn't been into, you know, and given some real kind of um, market market research too okay that's you've you've kind of um ans answered one of my next questions really is how useful it was the um do you still reference that business plan or has it evolved do you uh, maintain the business plan currently at the moment no it's it's evolved entirely um to be honest and um that because the original site was in Northampton, so it was actually on St. Giles Street in Northampton, and it and it fell, I pulled out of it right at the last minute to take a site in, in Wellingborough, um, which was our, we're no longer there anymore. It's still, it's now trading as a coffee shop again, lovely site on, on Church Street. Um, but that was delayed by 10 months because it was being refurbished by the council. Um, so that 10 months, I then went and got a job in a coffee shop um, and in quite a busy garden centre uh, restaurant, a very well-known one, uh, Beckworth's 
Emporium. Um, and I, that's when my learning really began on, on top of the business plan, actually seeing which things worked in commercial hospitality environments that weren't Pizza Hut. That's re- I find that fascinating that you just um, mentioned there, sort of picking up on that, that during your business planning stage, you, you got a job working in a, um, an organisation to learn more about the, that industry. Just sort of, I'm putting words in your mouth there, but is that exactly as it come together? Was, that, was, the, was it to learn or was it because you needed the income at that point? Literally, how was it? It was both. It was absolutely both, yeah. All the, all the redundancy money had gone into um, Bewitched at, at that point. So, yeah, to, to pay the mortgage, I, I needed two jobs, to, to be honest. Um, um, I think I'd got a, a friend who got me a bar job as well. Um, so, but yeah, the, the, the learning in, in, in the coffee shop side of things, especially Beckworth was really useful for, for, for different things. And actually the, the owners at Beckworth, um, when I kind of held my hands up and said, I'm, I'm actually looking to start my own business, were very fair with how, the, how they dealt with me. Um, but the coffee shop learning was, was really, really key. Yeah, that's, that, that's really good and something which for me on the outside and just generally sort of comments for anybody watching this is you can't get better learning about your industry than or the industry you're looking to launch in than actually to be in it or if you haven't already grown up working that industry to get some time there the you were made redundant obviously from pizza hut as you just mentioned the and that you was already writing a business plan you was putting savings to one side and the redundancy money gave a boost um and you just mentioned that literally all your redundancy money had gone into bewitched that's an all-in commitment um the i'm aware you have a young family at the moment i don't know what during you know in 2010 when this was happening whether you had a young family at that point in time or you no, didn't no. So that may have made the decision perhaps Possibly, a little yeah. easier, but that must have been a scary time to literally take this redundancy and go all in on a dream and aspiration of what you wanted to do. It was, and um, I remember again, because I knew my days were numbered at Pizza I was already having interviews alongside writing my business plan with other businesses. And I actually had a, an assessment center with a large pub group two days after I got made redundant. And I walked out of that telling my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, I've definitely got that, that job. Um, and I didn't get the job because um, I don't think what, what, I've, what I've always been very comfortable with is I'm not a salesman and I, I never will be. And that they, they, my potential boss wanted me to kind of espouse to him why I wanted to work for them. And I'd done a tour with one of their area managers around their estate. And to be honest, it wasn't for me. And I, and I couldn't. I just couldn't sell the fact that why I wanted to work for them. So I think that's the main reason I didn't get that role. Had I got that role, it was a good salary, you know, and, and it may have delayed things happening. Um, but the reality is I didn't get that role. So I was then, I was almost forced then to, to take that leap. The, at that time, you may feel differently now, but at that time, would you have preferred to take, have that, job there and have that secure income or um punt your redundancy on a new business 
Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to say, to be honest with you. I, th I think the, the reality is how it all panned out is when you haven't got that safety net, then you, you like I say, you're, you're pretty much forced down the route that you, you want to go down. But obviously there is a, the, there's an unknown quantity at the end of that route, whereas a, a safe corporate job, you kind of know what you're, you're getting. The um, quoting Dragon's Den again, you see situations where people will go on looking for investment in their business and they've always got that safety net that um, almost like their new venture is the side hustle and their main business is the job they do uh, to give them that secure income. Would you feel having that safety net taken away um, gave you the um, focus to just focus on Bewitched? Definitely, yeah. And uh, I had a meeting with somebody quite recently who, and everyone's obviously on an individual journey and, and they're forced to do different things, you know, do things differently. But they were kind of doing that where they had a, a role and then they've got a, a business that they're trying to run and I, I don't know how they're doing that, to, to be honest. I think, personally, for, for me, I couldn't have got the business where it, it, it's, it is now without being 100% focused on, on, on the business. So the you opened your first um, coffee shop, uh, you first bewitched in Wellingborough in 2010. The next 10 years were quite a journey, I'd imagine. The... Uh, I remember reading a particular comment you gave, and I saw an article in the newspaper about the launch of the first drive-through, which I'd love to come back to um, as that as a concept in itself. But you used the terms feeling inadequate as a father, husband, leader, and um, founder. The That's um, a difficult emotion to deal with. Uh, when um, so many things are happening and you're having to commit to so many parts. Um, and this, you made this comment 10 years-ish after opening the first uh, Bewitched. So tell me a bit about those 10 years. What was going on in that journey and um, what, was, you know, what was happening within yourself, within your own business and within Bewitched? Yeah, well, you're trying to form a path where you're balancing running one site where you've you've got control. I remember one on site one at one point, I wouldn't let anyone else make a coffee uh, for a couple of weeks because it, I, you know, I had this whole control freak element around. I was the only one that could could produce a decent coffee on the coffee machine. Um, you then go to two, you know to two sites, and obviously you, I can't part that me only only me making the coffee long before that anyway, but. Um, you go to two sites and realise, right, well, you've got somebody. So Richard was running site one. I took on site two in Kettering. Um, but you've got different problems because you've not got eyes on site one. So you're kind of making some assumptions about what's happening there. And they may or may not have been happening. And then to get to site three, you've got to, I think what you, you've got to do is you've got to trust other people with, with the keys to your business and the keys to your values and how you want to present your business to the world. And I think that's one of the main challenges in, in scaling an independent business. Um, just touching on Kettering, um, I saw a great post on social media um, about the opening of Kettering and then literally massive opening of another brand directly opposite. Um, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth because I thought that was a fantastic story. Please tell us about... Yeah, so, so we opened Kettering three weeks before what was effectively the second Costa in Kettering. Um, it's now the only Costa because the, the other one's closed uh, during lockdown. But um, we'd got off to a decent start. We, we knew it actually hurt the original Costa because they were telling us that. Um, we then watched the, the refit happen very quickly on the, on the site opposite us and literally... You could kind of get a laser from our till, and sh as it happened, not by not through planning, but shine it straight through and to their till. So you're looking at them, we're you know, and vice versa. All like on. literally that close. Like yeah, so I've seen the photo, but for anybody who's not, you know, they're right next to each other. They they are. So there's full visibility on um, how how you're trading or or not. Um, the franchisee at that point in time, what he tended to do was have like a a pre-opening shindig where I think they invited loads of team from other sites and family and friends. So it was five o'clock on a Wednesday evening. I know this because I play football on, on Wednesdays and um, they were full um, in their nice shiny store, new store. And um, I, I was on, on the clothes by myself and from five o'clock onwards till seven, I didn't see another customer. So obviously I busied myself cleaning things that didn't need cleaning and you know sweeping floors that didn't basically doing anything to look busy but feeling like the entirety of probably about 80 people in there were kind of staring at me uh, and obviously in that moment you kind of start to think well what are they thinking and possibly thinking what on earth is why would you open next to Costa um, I was then on the open the following morning so I got in, got in at seven o'clock they were already open uh, they already had customers in for takeaways and bits and bobs um, and then went to open our store at half seven and didn't see a customer until five to ten um, and I think uh, there was there was quite a few other examples of that during the journey at Kettering because it's probably 18 months really for a coffee a new coffee shop to hit revenue that isn't a, a major brand um, but that's the one that resonates the most because I, I kind of went into panic mode to be honest so I didn't see a customer for a you know, in, in total for just for about four hours. And um, you start to think, actually, I've really messed up here. Um, I started to think about, um, I went to Australia when I left uni. I started to think about perhaps heading back to Australia. Um, it, I was kind of staring defeat and failure in, in, in the face, really. And how long after opening your first um, store in Wellingborough was the Kettering store. So it's 2012 Kettering. So a couple of years after. Um, and just to remind those watching, you'd literally ploughed all of your redundancy and all of your money into this. Um, the how You mentioned 18 months for store to start to turn revenue. That's a long period of time to manage on what's effectively savings um the how long was it during that journey from that cost to open you know having a few hours of just you know cleaning cups continuously and looking at was it before um the kettering store started to pick up and start you started to things started to feel safer i suppose it, it was 18 months. It literally took it 18 months. Good. Yeah. But we would, as I say, we, we'd got off to a good start in Kettering. And actually, I remember once we had that first, first customer come through at five to 10 on the Thursday morning, 
um, we, you know, we, we then had a, we didn't have a great day, but we ticked though. We had a reasonable day. Um, but it, it was very much alert because we, I think we've put five or six next to Costa to date. And I now know what the journey is. Um, and I've witnessed it firsthand, um, that, you know, I kind of call them blip days, you know, and you'll get this with it, with any new store opening, certainly in our experience where you'll, you'll get a day that is extremely quiet and you can't actually put your finger on why that was. Um, reality is in a coffee shop, 50% of your customers are regular customers. If you don't have a regular customer base, it doesn't matter how nice the shop looks, um, how shiny it is, how great the service, the product is, how clean it is. If it's next to a major brand and that brand is full with a queue and you're empty, no one, very few people are going to set foot in your shop. They will go with a safe bet and they'll set foot, you know, obviously they'll go to Costa. But like, I can resonate with that. The, when you, um, when you look at, I'm, I'm talking meths of probably, so not so much you, you purse yourself, but you'd look at brands like Starbucks, international brand. You look at Costa, big international brand, sort of corporate side. The, um, looking at how you, run bewitched um it is a family business um in every sense you're you've been very hands-on in sort of building that up and looking at um you i've seen a comment where you've sort of will get up we're sort of moving into the stage where your children are born so you you, you have babies have young family and you're getting up at one o'clock in the morning baby's crying and you'll do what uh, any small business owner will do whilst you're awake, you'll look at your phone. The, I know you've got stories uh, about that. How the, what are the emotions you go through when you're doing those things and what impact does that have on even your mental health, your well-being of yourself when you find yourself doing that, but what other choice do you have? Yeah, so I think the one you're referencing there is, I think I'd said, so quite often when, if it was my turn to go and get um, one of the kids that they've woken up, you check your phone, see what the time is. You've got notifications on Google Business and someone's left a one-star review. Um, whether they've left it and it's a lot, I've never been able to work out whether you get that live or it comes to you a couple of hours later. Um, but yeah, obviously it changes your mood immediately um, to frustration as to, you know, Particularly when, you know, I mean, even now, um, when we get poor reviews through, I don't think there's anything that frustrates me more um, in, in our business, um, particularly when they reference, you know, poor service. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just trying to deal with those emotions in, in a rational way. And I think um, I've probably learned to, to do that over the course of, you know, the last 10 years or so. But uh, but during those times, that's a journey you go through where you have to you go through that, um, I'd say, learning experience, really, of dealing with that. But I can only, um, well, I say I imagine, I've, I've been there. <laughs> the when, when it's yours and you've got, you're building up this business and you've, you're, you're all in, as referenced earlier, it's not the business, it's you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and it's funny because if friends or family or former colleagues go into any of our businesses and they see something that they don't think is right, 
they will, will immediately be questioning to themselves, what, why is it accepting that? And the reality is, you, as a business owner, you, you're probably not accepting that, but because you know, we've got 150 people that work for us now, it is a constant challenge to get them all on, on the same page, particularly in a business where there's going to be you know, a reasonable level of turnover as there is in any hospitality business. Yeah, and, and how do you manage that then? Then if you've got 150 people, you have your own values, you have your own way in which, you, you, when people look at Bewitched, you want them to feel something. Uh, I suppose, actually a fair question would be, what do you want them to feel? And then how do you get that down through your team of 150 people? Yeah, so I think we, we want them to feel welcome. And then we want them to feel appreciated when when they've when they've been to us, um, and we think that's what the larger corporates really really struggle with. Um, and I think to get that message across, certainly in this day and age with Gen Z, you've got to try and do it every which way you can. You know, we use Slack, which is quite a popular business communication system. So that that's part of it. Um, that's a big part of it actually. Our communication cycle with our team. Um, and I think it's just sending out this consistent messages to them on a daily and, and sometimes hourly basis to try and keep that, that focus up there. So when you, so following um, that up, you, you mentioned Gen Z and this, this generation, the young generation, they have a, they have different aspirations. They have a different uh, way of working, an approach to work, to what, um, you know, I, I started my working career in 1990, so things were very different then to how they are now. They, when dealing with them, you mentioned Slack, you mentioned instant messaging. How do you measure the take-up? How do you measure the um, their engagement with the brand, their engagement with the values that you want, you know, what you want people to think of when they think of Bewitched? I think we measure it through things like business reviews and, and most most of the time when people review our business, they'll reference service first, be that in a positive or negative manner. Um, I think you're then, you know, when you do observations, um, you're, you're seeing if people are connected. And I think someone said to me recently, the, the best question to ask yourself is, do they care? And I think that's that really kind of boiled it down for me um, because sometimes you can actually very clearly see both in our business and other businesses that perhaps people don't care. And obviously that can have horrific damage on your business if that's the case. So I think it's trying to deal with, when, when that becomes apparent, trying to deal with that as quickly as possible. And looking at evolution and moving on the you moved into uh roasting your own coffee we're going so we're going to be roasting our own coffee by the end of q2 it's been quite a long uh <clears throat> journey the machine was manufactured in south africa and when they had their big spike uh with covid down there it delayed the machine coming over but we've got the machine now hoping to get it all up and running by the end of q2 it's an electric roaster, so it's it's quite a good story for us to tell our customers because there's far less uh, emissions and there's there's obviously a carbon footprint saving by roasting it electrically as opposed to with gas. Um, and yeah, we're just we're just in the process of um, we've got some samples this week actually of green beans from some very small batch um, farms. 
in in Ecuador. Uh, so it will be a really it'll be a great coffee. And what we're going to do is we're going to sit that as a guest blend alongside our our existing blend, which is roasted um, in Market Harbour. Oh, the um, in an old railway shed. It is, yeah. yeah. It is indeed, yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lovely spot. Grand opening. There will be a grand opening, absolutely, yeah. Look out for my invite. <laughs> <laughs> Has uh, I meant, I've touched on franchising a few times, and the franchise business model is something which um, has some really strong, really good businesses, good um, sort of processes within there for people, um, especially, especially in a nutshell, you're investing in, you're buying into a tried and tested model. And the from what, just looking from the outside, the journey you're going through with Bewitched, you know, looks like it's following that, trying you know you're trialing you're testing you're measuring um before taking the leap into a sort of franchising the model um on the flip side as we see within uk business forums there are some less than strong franchise models if i use that term where the you're, you're going to be struggled to make a return on that so it's it's a it's a model where I would um, turn around to people and say, "What are you buying when you're buying a franchise?" The there's two really sort of questions here. One really is, was it always in the roadmap, always in the business plan? So when from the very moment you opened up the first Bewitched in Wellingborough, was the plan always to go multi-site, expand, move towards um, trial and testing, and then move into franchise. So that's sort of one part of the question. Um, and then, uh, if you know, whichever answer there, why the franchise model for Bewitch? Yeah, absolutely. No, it was never part of the, <laughs> part of the plan, to, to be honest. I wouldn't say it was not there in the periphery somewhere, possibly. Um, what I have seen is a lot of um, coffee operators in the uh, in the well, a lot of coffee operators in the franchise sector franchise very quickly. So from kind of one to two sites, then franchise. Um, what we've done is probably the reverse, where I've been quite reluctant to, to franchise the business. And again, it might boil back a little bit to trust us, I, I suppose. Uh, but equally, when you look at the most successful franchise businesses, McDonald's being one. Um, processes, systems have got to be absolutely nailed on. Um, there can't be any grey areas. You know, we're we're very confident now. We've got um, some of the best processes, certainly for a business our size. Um, we're using automation. We'd like to think quite cleverly in the business. So we've got about kind of four thousand automations a month that, that go on. Uh, things like Slack, for instance, um, and. Um, I think the interesting thing for us is that the franchise deal that we've just signed with the Heart of England Co-op, um, we're confident that they've got the the capability and the ambition to deliver our business on a, on a bigger scale to a bigger audience, but still retain our ethos. And and why franchising is a route. I think it's well. Obviously, it's it's a way to expand your business without burning your own cash flow. Is 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 is, is the simple um, question, uh, simple response. But it's um, I think it's just to get us to a to a to a bigger bigger audience as as much as anything. Um, 
having said that, a lot of the conversations I have with in the franchise community, a lot the first question you tend to get asked is how many are you going to open next year? And I think for me, it's never been about numbers. It's it's all it's all about quality. Um, and actually, the agreement with the co-op, we, you know, I kind of reined back what they were potentially planning to do, um, because again, even even with those guys who who I, I trust implicitly, um, I think it's all about doing it properly. Um, and the sort of picked up some of the comments you've mentioned whilst we've been talking is you know the quality atten attention to detail be my words i put into there um it's it must be quite a difficult journey for you personally to go through um looking at that model and looking at, the, at when they're your staff and they're people that work within your organization directly um it's easier to have an element of control and and oversight as to what people are doing when you move into franchise and then you've potentially got other companies running your brand. The As somebody who has a passion for making sure that things are right and things are um, reflective of what you want the brand to reflect, that must be a difficult journey. Yeah, and it's, to be honest, it's one we're, we're yet to embark on really i think the first franchise unit will open in september uh i think and it's up it's up to us to give them the tools to deliver the the business as as we see it uh, and then obviously they'll be effectively audited by by us um but yeah i'm very confident as i think if you if you can garner the right franchise partners then it, it clearly is, is a route to expand your business successfully i'm picking up on that they say it's less about getting the the numbers, the, the the openings, bang bang, one to other, but yeah, picking the right numbers from that. The um, as sort of move through and the you know the business is growing, how are you finding balancing your time, or what or what techniques do you have, or are you not um, able to? You know, are you still finding it difficult to balance that family, your your personal time, and you know, man being the managing director of a growing business that's, you know, continuing to evolve and continuing to grow. And as you say, looking at these expansion plans, how are you juggling that? So, yes, yeah, it's, it's not dissimilar to when we kind of got to site four, five, I, you know, it was clear we needed an area manager of, of sorts. So I think it's trying to bolt roles in as, as you expand. And quite often my experience has been that those roles have been bolted in six months, 12 months too late. Um, so with this next phase, I think we're, we're effectively going to nearly double our senior team over the next six months. I think that that's part of the coping strategy. Yeah. Uh, is it working? Well, they haven't started yet. <laughs> right. But so. um, I, I think what it will, it will increase direct reports to me. And I think that needs, that's definitely something that needs to be uh, resolved. I think, you know, I think if you go above eight direct reports, you're, you're, you're effectively going to struggle. Um, I've mentioned automation a few times, that that helps us loads. So at this moment in time, as we're sat here, um, the sort of the second tier management isn't there yet. So you're, you're, you're if I may say, sort of doing the juggling and sort of managing that at the moment and you're bringing people in so how's the um sort of pick up on that 
do you have a way of um, managing that and looking after yourself uh, during this current time before these people come in? Yeah, I mean, so we've got a structure myself, my wife who does a couple of days a week, and then I've got two other, so I've got Richard and Michael who, who work full-time um, above store in the business. Um, so to be, to be fair, in the last 12 months, we've got ourselves really well organised, um, really well structured in terms of who's responsible for what. The reality is we still all have too many responsibilities, um, hence why we're looking to bring, to add into the senior team, to be honest, it's, it's to take, to segment out certain elements that, Richard and Michael are doing to, to pass over to these new 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 guys. And you and if I picked up what you said moment uh, correctly, you're bringing these people in now um, before it's six months too late. As exactly. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Because in in theory, uh, well, in in practice, that the first franchise will open in September. I don't anticipate any more franchises this year. But then next year. There could be, you know, certainly I think the most stores we've opened in a year is two. That will certainly be beaten next year. So it's just making sure we've got the infrastructure in place to deal with that. So as we sit here now, how many stores are open? So we've got 13 currently. Yeah, so that's a reasonable growth. That's a good number. And they're all around Northamptonshire, is that right at the moment? Yeah, uh, nine in Northamptonshire, two in Cambridgeshire and then one in Rugby. Yeah, it's a gradually domination on the plan for the UK? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I think, um, yeah, for, for us, I think it's, so the heart of England, for instance, their territory is, is kind of more West Midlands. Um, and as I say, I think, A, it's seeing what opportunities come our way. Obviously very keen to get uh, some more drive-through uh, businesses open. So that's that's where a lot of our focus is currently. And um, sort of, wrapping up there's a particular store that the, there was a lot of uh, publicity about and that was the one in Moulton Park which was the first purpose-built drive-through uh, store is that right so it's, there's, there's a soundbite thing along the lines of the first uh, independent purpose-built drive-through coffee shop in the UK and Europe yeah. there's something along those lines yeah yeah um, that's been my local funny enough so the um, what made you decide to try that again looking at the market seeing what the, the the big you know you look at costa and uh starbucks in particular and their their new opening strategy it effectively it's not all drive-throughs but it's, it's very largely weighted towards drive-throughs i think um starbucks have currently got 275 costa have got 270 um so it, it was just trying to get into that market i've been trying to do that since as early as 2014 to be honest yeah. um but to get a drive-through built, you're going to have to get a developer to knock one up for you, and you're going to have to have a strength of covenant for them to satisfy either their investors or their forward selling the site or whatever it might be. So um, I think that's what we're quite proud of, to be honest with you, is that we had the strength of covenant to get that one over the line at Moulton Park. And the at that point, um, from the press release I saw there, and, and as you allude to, the you was um you'd got um because i'm seeing a, in my mind a journey here from 2010 where you've put um your redundancy your savings into starting bewitched to a point where you're able to have that financial uh, strength to open that store without uh or at least get it built so i say i don't know the ins and outs but uh to have a developer 
have that confidence to put that into action without raising external finance. Is that right? It is, yeah. So for us from so 2014, so store number four onwards, we, we've taken no debt into the business to open new stores. Um, so yeah, everything you see in Martin Park, we own. We don't lease anything. Um, and although there's an, an initial obviously cash out later to do that, you're then, you know, you're not overpaying for bits of equipment over a three year term. Um, so profitability wise, it, it works much better as a model for us. And how do you um, feel you achieved that? Or what is the secret in that sense? Because it from the outside, it sounds like almost impossible. Um, to, to actually achieve this level of growth without external finance, but you've achieved it. The, and well, it's, could you, you know, is, was it a, con, well, I feel it perhaps was a conscious decision, but why not bring in external finance and expedite that growth? Uh, in terms of what private equity, in in any way, yeah. whether it whether it could be a, a bank loan finance, asset yeah. finance, or whether yeah. private equity, the um, it's when you look at businesses that um, follow a model similar to yours, where you are going out on that expansion plan, the most common route would be to go and get financing to expedite that. The um, but you you didn't You've, you're achieving growth, which is uh, fantastic. And as you say, it's a proud moment to get a developer to invest into building privately owned drive-through venue, um, and you're in a strong financial position to back that. Yeah, and I think that's it. I think you know when I think back to Kettering in 2012, when I had you know quite a few sleepless nights over the whole how the business was performing, and there was obviously some kit in there that had been asset finance. There was a bank loan, and you can see it kind of soaking up your your profits so as soon as we were at a point as I say with store four or five in 2014 um, where we didn't have to outlay um, then it just gives you that control back um, and you know obviously for everybody when you know March 2020 clicked around and uh, you know we're, everyone was closing including us our, our businesses it was nice to know that you know we could actually commit to our team and say look we're going to fulfill payroll this month we didn't know about furlough at that point um it just it enables you to sleep at night which is i think the most important thing not it was the decision of not wanting to have that debt that drove that decision definitely yeah because um yeah that debt as i say it's just it hangs over you in in, in so many ways and um i've seen quite a few again in our sector you know be them locally or, or or nationally where they've leveraged a lot of debt to expand their business and personally that's that's not the route i would i would prefer to take and nobody can argue with that i think the um it's um as i said earlier i'm a fan of bewitched i'm a fan of your business um i would personally say the um the coffees there are better than costa and the food quality is really good so i appreciate that thank you last question before we uh wrap up for today thank you the we've um you've grown a um 
privately owned business that's done really well and you continue to grow and continue to expand that on as we've just spoken about. The, uh, there comes a time with all of us where you know, our existence in whichever form we are now comes to an end. The, what would you like to be remembered for? That's a good question. Um, I think just building a business and trying to build a business in, in, in the right way. Um, if we're talking obviously purely about business, yeah. It can be business, it can be personally uh, or a combination okay. of both. I guess uh, what part of what I've tried to achieve, and it's quite fortunate in the coffee sector because we're not open late at night, you know, you know, by the drive through to be fair, at nine o'clock, but we're, we're not closing businesses at 12 o'clock at night. Is it, uh, achieving um, success in business and, and in my personal life. It's uh, really great to see you. Know, great talking to you. Thank you for sharing the story. And thank you for watching. And if you're watching this on YouTube, um, please do like, ask any questions below. I'm sure I'll be able to forward them on to Matt. Um, hit that subscribe and on the across the other channels, follow, subscribe. That'd be fantastic. And I'll share more stories with you over the coming weeks. Thank you for listening. Remember to like, share and subscribe to help spread the stories of small businesses across the UK. Have you got a story to share? Reach out to us on ukbf.co.uk and you never know, you could be the next UKBF story.